Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You don't assume that they are so, the expert and the defense attorneys are sometimes so deep in it together, but they were just not, they were not working this case up to be tried. They thought it was going to be settled. They probably thought we would take the 75. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. And uh, since I know this podcast is going to be played tomorrow, which is different than normal, I wish everybody uh, hope they had a great Mother's Day. And uh, and Yvonne, hope you had a great uh, weekend and uh, and Mother's Day and did something special for your mom. Thank you. I didn't. I didn't do anything. <laughs> yes, you did. You called. She's, I did call her. She's coming to town next weekend. So I was like, can we postpone? Um, my dog didn't get me anything. As you know, this is my first mo- uh, Mother's Day as a dog mom. She, yes. She didn't get me anything. I know. I know. And, and I was thinking about Nasha because this is uh, this uh, podcast, this episode that we have coming up is uh, is especially important for her. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm stressed. I'm glad she's not here right now. I'm glad because I feel like we would both be feeling a lot of tension um, about this episode. But I'm just glad that she's um, I'm glad that I picked a dog that was um, uh, smaller, lighter, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, we we are we're stringing this out. What the uh, subject of our trial that we'll be talking about here in a second is a dog bite case. And um, and I do think it's interesting, Yvonne, this is a little shout out to one of our partners, Andy. Uh, Andy Kahn. Uh, this is about a Rhodesian Ridgeback, which I know is the exact same type of dog that Andy has. So uh, yeah, you know, this is a, a special warning to Andy. Watch your dog. Yeah, I know. I thought I immediately thought about him. His dog's pretty good, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's go ahead and uh, and introduce our guests. We've got two fantastic trial lawyers uh, who tried a great case. Uh, two young and up and coming uh, trial lawyers on uh, opposite sides of the coast. We've got Nathan Worksman from uh, New York City, and we've got John Davidi from Los Angeles. Uh, Nathan and John, how are you guys doing? We're doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Steve and Yvonne. We are, uh, we're, we're so pleased to have you guys on the show. And I think this will be a, a, a fun trial to talk about. And, um, and as we said already, it involves a, a dog bite case in the dog. I mean, this had to be tough for the case and we'll get into it, but I mean, the dog's name was Turkey. I mean, how do you make it sound like this is a, you know, vicious dog out there and his name is Turkey. We, we actually, we actually filed a motion in Lemonade. Did you really <laughs> to 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 preclude the defense from referring to the dog as Turkey <laughs> and from showing a picture of the dog, which the dog is a Rhodesian Ridgeback, but it, it was like a mutt. Right, John. Right. <laughs> and a very cute dog, like a yeah. really, really adorable dog. Uh, the judge obviously denied those motions, but we didn't like that the dog's name was Turkey and was really cute. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Well, uh, well, Nathan, let me start with you um, so I can tell everybody who um, who you are and, and where they can find you. So Nathan Worksman is a lawyer with Merson Law PLLC with offices in New York and uh, Philadelphia. Uh, before coming to New York City, uh, Nathan was in uh, California. And actually, I think John and Nathan practiced the same law firm, and that's how they tried this uh, this case together. Nathan is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, 
and then uh, went on to Stanford Law School, a pretty good law school that I've heard of before, and uh, was the co-president of the Stanford Plaintiffs Lawyers Association, or maybe I got that wrong, maybe the co-president of the American Constitutional Society, um, but is now on the New York State Trial Lawyers Board of Directors, is admitted in New York, California, Nevada, and has had a number of uh, really good verdicts and, and a number of great settlements uh, ranging from 1.3 million up to 31.6 million, uh, including a $5 million um, uh, settlement for one of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell. So, um, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. It's, uh, it's good to be here. And I, sh- I should say, if you want to look up Nathan, you can go to mersonlaw.com. That's M E R S O N law.com. Uh, our second uh, lawyer is John Davidi. He is a lawyer at Panache Boyle Ravapudi, I think. I, I know I was going to murder that, murder uh, your partner's name, so please apologize. Uh, please please apologize for me to him. But uh, Panache Boyle Ravapudi LLP uh, in Los Angeles, California, a fantastic firm that uh, we had Brian Panish on the show early on for uh, one of his verdicts, and anybody who knows trial lawyers uh, knows the firm because they've been involved in uh, just some humongous cases. Um, so John uh, is a graduate of the University of California Hastings, was in the Honor Society, and was part of the national championship uh, mock trial team for the AAJ trial tournament, and uh, is a member of the Consumer Attorneys Association of California based in Los Angeles, and is fluent in Farsi. I read that right, John? Yes. Very cool. Very cool. And and now Yvonne is going to show us what she knows in Farsi. Go ahead, Yvonne. (laughs) Why must you shame me? You know I'm already stressed out about this episode. Why? Right. Um, well, uh, anyways, it's great to have you guys on. And I should say, if you want to look up John, you can go to psbr.law. I guess psbr.law. It's always weird to see uh, the uh, the names that end in .law instead of .com. I keep wanting to say .com, but psbr.law. So um, anyways, we, uh, we are really glad to have Nathan and John on the show. And the case that we're talking about is a case that the two of them tried uh, back in October, September and October of 2020, if everybody might recall, that was sort of right in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, there weren't really any or many uh, trials going on at that time. Um, this was in Orange County, um, California. The name of the case is Jennifer Jones versus Matthew Epstein uh, and involved a dog bite of Jennifer um, by a dog owned by Mr. Epstein. Uh, and the dog's name was Turkey. And uh, I know you guys wanted to keep that out and eliminate, but um, we're just going to keep using Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> It's the dog's um, name. Right, right. The the result of the case was a $309,250 uh, verdict. And as we talk through this, uh, that that is a, uh, even though it doesn't sound as, as big as some of the other verdicts that we have for this case, I'll say uh, this is a really good verdict um, because uh, the injuries, at least the, the, the photo of the injury that I saw, um, I'm just going to say it just didn't look that bad. But, uh, but, but, uh, but obviously your client was badly injured and she had, she had been treated for a long time and I'm going to go through that. But, 
Um, essentially, the case is that on December 15, 2016, um, Jennifer was out for her morning walk in uh, Laguna Niguel, um, and it was 9.45 a.m. She was walking down the sidewalk and coming opposite of her were Mr. Epstein uh, with his Rhodesian Ridgeback, 55 pounds, uh, turkey. And um, and as she was trying to walk by him, I think she's, he was wearing a choker and she kind of saw him yank the dog, uh, which made her a little bit nervous. And then as she was walking by um the the dog jumped up, uh, bit her arm and uh, broke the skin. She started to bleed pretty badly and then basically pulled her down to the ground and um, and forced her down. Um, and uh, she suffered not only uh, injuries to her arm, to the nerves in her arm because of the bleeding that was involved, um, but also just the, in the fall. Um, and so after that happened, uh, Mr. Uh, Epstein uh, took the dog back inside. I think he brought some maybe towels out and then actually he was the one to drive her to the emergency room. Is that right? That is correct. That is oh, correct. Okay. The, yeah. the, the sequence of events with between the plaintiff and the defendant that day uh, is kind of funny. Okay. We, we can, we can add some <laughs> yeah. color to that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'll just talk, I'll just talk real quickly about her injuries and then we'll talk about what the sequence of events was, but, so in that, she suffered uh, essentially two injuries, a, a radial tunnel syndrome uh, injury uh, to her um, elbow and her forearm, and then uh, lateral epicondylitis, which uh, the defense, and I looked it up on the internet too, just to be sure, um, refers to as tennis elbow. Um, and the reason why this case was sort of hotly contested is because your client was an avid golfer and her job was as a golf instructor. And there's an argument, I'm not saying they're right, but there's an argument that radial tunnel syndrome and lateral epicondylitis uh, are repetitive injuries that can be caused by um, repetitively swinging like you might do in golf. Um, so I'm, and so, and I, I saw what the main defenses were. And so that was certainly one of the main defenses uh, here was that the injuries that she was uh, claiming were caused by golf and not by uh, the bite or the fall. And, and then the other part of the defense was, is that they weren't admitting that this was a bite. Uh, and and that becomes important because under California law, um, the if if there is a bite, a bite, a dog bite, then the owner is automatically responsible for the injuries caused by that bite. Um, but there was some contention that the that this might have been a scratch and not a bite and so if it turns out to be a scratch then it doesn't become a strict liability case where they're automatically responsible it then goes into negligence and that's why as we'll get into it the case was tried both under strict liability and under negligence um and um and essentially the treatment that your your client went through and, and she did go through significant treatment uh she had it sounded like uh 80 um, therapy visits or uh, around there, um, with trying to work on her elbow. Um, then she got, uh, some PRP injections, which are, uh, platelet rich plasma injections. And I'll let you guys talk about that. Uh, and then that didn't work. And then she basically got the choice of whether or not she was going to have to have surgery or just live with pain for the rest of her life. And, um, after hearing all of that, um, the jury uh, awarded $309,250. And, um, and as I, I did say, and I do want to hear from you guys 
um, since this was one of the first verdicts that was tried during the pandemic, I mean, how how was it trying that case and what um, what did the judge do uh, as far as social distancing or, you know, mask and all that kind of stuff? So uh, Nathan or John, whoever wants to start first, if you want to talk about either, I, I guess, the, the COVID setup or what the interactions were between uh, Mr. Epstein and your client, Jennifer Jones, uh, either way, we can get started there. Well, I'll, I'll talk about the COVID uh, protocols real fast. Cause I actually, something that I did change them during the trial. This was one of the first, as far as we know, this was the first post COVID jury trial in Southern California. Um, and we started trying the case and the requirements, first of all, the jurors were spread out between the box and the gallery in California, you have 12 jurors and two alternates and they were spread out you know, six feet apart in the box, but then also in the gallery behind us, which was kind of weird. There was plexiglass everywhere. The there were each each side had two counsel tables because there was John and I trying it for the plaintiffs, two defense counsel. We were each at our own big table, um, and then we were required to wear face shields and and masks during the trial. The face shields are you've seen those; they're the kind of silly looking things. And we got we we asked the judge and she agreed to let us just wear the face shields. And in the second day of trial, I, I went to the witness stand to hand the witness an exhibit. And the presiding judge of Orange County was watching. This whole trial was streamed on YouTube. And at that moment, the presiding judge had been watching the trial and saw me come to the witness stand and saw that I only had a face shield. So we come back from lunch and the judge is like, I got a call from the presiding judge. Oh, no. Can't just wear a face shield. It's a face shield and a mask. And this was, you know, this was September. It was still hot. We were in like kind of a cramped courtroom. And so we were masked up, face shields. You were sweating like in the band where the face shield meets your forehead. It was kind of crazy. Uh, we were just happy to be trying it. <laughs> so in, in the jurors, were they wearing masks or were they, they weren't wearing face shields, I assume? They were not wearing face shields, but they were all masked. And so, and what about the witnesses? What were they? How were they dressed? They they were allowed to just do face shields because the witness stand was fully covered in plexiglass. That was okay. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. The witnesses looked like they were in the Pope mobile. It was like one right. of those things. <laughs> right. So when you went to go hand a, a an exhibit to the witness, are you like throwing it over the plexiglass or uh, what's we, we happening? Put it into a paper airplane and kind right. of yeah. flicked it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and that had to be weird as far as if you got some of the jurors sitting in the box and then some sitting in the gallery as far as doing opening statements or closing statements or voir dire you don't exactly know where to put your attention. How was that? Nothing about this trial was normal. (laughs) (laughs) So in openings and closings, I I did the opening, Nathan did the closing and we're running all over the courtroom. You know, I had set up a a, a piece of a butcher board with some butcher paper in one side of the courtroom and the other, and you're just kind of pacing and, and, and trying to talk to everyone as much as you can. Um, at the same time though, I think the people who showed up and ended up on our jury were actually interested because they had done nothing for six months. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Listen to this <laughs> fun trial during Wadir, we asked about some of this stuff. Like, you know, do you think it's stupid that you're going to be here listening to a dog bite case when COVID is ravaging our country right now? And 
it was Orange County, so most people didn't really care. And right. They were they were just happy to be there. But you know, other than wearing a face shield and having the jurors spread out, it was it, it was business as usual. And we put on witnesses and they showed up on time and we opened and we closed and we got a verdict. Right. So, and, and one thing I should mention, I know a little bit about the counties out there, but not uh, like you do, but uh, so you have Los Angeles County and then you have Orange County, which I think is more Anaheim area. Um, And and my understanding, Orange County is uh, significantly more conservative than say Los Angeles County. Is that right? Correct. Correct. And for those who are listening in New York, Orange County is like Nassau County or Suffolk County, not a plaintiff friendly venue historically. Right. I think it's getting a little bit better, but you know, a lot of people told us that it was insane to try this case in Orange County. Yeah. Well, yeah. Told us it was insane to try this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about part of it when you were talking about the fact that, and we'll talk about this, but when you were talking about the damages and the fact that she had to be in a cast when she was getting the, uh, the PRP injections, so, so, you know, when she's trying to teach golf, she's not able to like really help out, but I'm thinking, well, this is in the middle of COVID. So I'm wondering how much teaching of golf she was doing anyways. Was it, was it much? So, and, and let me just say, we, we did not even make a loss of earnings claim. Right. We had waived that because it wasn't enough. She's someone who gets paid cash or Venmo from her clients, you know, and she teaches outdoors and she was able to go back to work. That wasn't the issue. Um, how we kind of beefed up the golf thing for her general damages, her pain and suffering was that prior to this incident, she was a scratch golfer. She was a former pro, very good. It's a huge part of her identity. Um, and after this incident, she sucked. Yeah, she's right. pain, but she wasn't <laughs> golf anymore. And a lot of times she would go out golfing with students or show a student how to do something. And it was embarrassing for her to shank a ball or to shoot, you know, seven over eight over whatever when she used to be a scratch golfer and you know we vaud you on that too is you know do you play golf do you not play golf do you care what are your hobbies you know things like that so um it, it added another layer that we weren't asking for loe and the medical bills weren't particularly high in this case either right she had about 35 or forty thousand dollars in past medical bills and the future surgery was quoted at about thirty-seven thousand or something and she had told her physical therapist like 10 times that she wasn't going to get the surgery. So that was, you know, another kind of hurdle that we had to jump through. Right. Yeah. And I, I saw in one of the slides that you sent us, the, the past bills were at least, at least listed as 46,000. Okay, awesome. um, yeah. Right. Well, t- well, tell me about the interaction between, uh, between Jennifer and, and Mr. Epstein after, or, you know, when, when they're trying to cross each other's paths and, and, um, and the dog uh, takes hold of uh, Jennifer. So, uh, John, tell, you, you jump in if I'm missing something, but she's going on a morning walk in one direction in her neighborhood. He's going on a morning walk in the other direction. He's got Turkey who's on, a, you know, on kind of a choke collar and they're walking past each other and Turkey jumps across Mr. Epstein, bites Ms. Jones' arm and pulls her to the ground. There's a dispute about whether or not she was pulled to the ground. Um, she's bleeding. You know, she's kind of hysterical. Uh, Mr. Epstein takes her to, tries to take her to urgent care. She testified she requested to be taken to the emergency room. She's taken there. And then at the emergency room, she's given a prescription for, for pain meds and some antibiotics. 
but it takes some time to fill the prescription. It's not like, you know, it's not over the counter stuff. And so the defendant takes her back to his house and um, they, they share a six pack of, of like a, of wine. It was like a wine cooler six pack, right, John? <laughs> yeah. They, they split a six pack over the, of not, you know, over the course of an hour or two. And then he takes her to pick up her prescription and takes her home. And I think that's the last time that they interact. Um, so that was like, I mean, it's, it's just a weird thing to deal with. Right. Right. And, and how far did they live from each other? I assume the close to fairly close to each other. They lived, they, yeah, they lived fairly close to each other. By the time the trial came around, they had both moved. Okay. Okay. They okay. were in the same apartment, but they had lived fairly close to each other in the, in the neighborhood. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I was going to add, you know, the her, her pounding a six pack with the defendant right after this dog bite is kind of relevant, too, because she had 
you know, in addition to her being a, a golf instructor, she had more surgeries than she was in the top percentile of, you know, surgery recipients in America. She'd probably had, you know, she had a new hip. She had probably five or six surgeries prior. She had a documented history of alcoholism and a documented history of depression. Um, so for our, th those, those injuries created a bunch of hurdles that we needed to avoid. You know, we knew the case was really going to be a pain and suffering case. And you've got someone with a documented history of depression and, you know, her alcoholism didn't help her health. And the fact that she had, she was in her late fifties and had had a ton of surgeries already. It seemed like had the defense really focused on that, they could have made a bigger deal out of the fact that she wasn't physically in good shape when this dog bit her. And with, I mean, just out of curiosity, did the uh, sharing of the six pack, did that come up in trial or did it did? Okay. Yeah. I see Nathan shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it, John, didn't it, it, you know, she was like the defense attorney was like, so you split some wine coolers with the defendant. It, it, it wasn't a big deal, but they definitely brought it up. I would have hammered it a lot harder if I was the defense lawyer and yeah. and we could talk about a lot of the missteps that the defense made in this case that probably led right but um yeah it came up the alcoholism came up we moved in limine to exclude it and it, that was denied so that came up too um but you know I think they liked our client at the end of the day and they thought that this was real yeah yeah I mean, the other thing I was thinking about sharing the uh, six pack is which arm is she drinking with? Is it, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> no, um, well, uh, I mean, talk about, you know, so we, we talked about the, the defenses in this case and, and like I said, you brought this case both in strict liability and in negligence. First of all, talk just, uh, just quickly about why you had to do that in California, why you, you have to bring both claims because neither one and one or the other doesn't get you more in damages or anything like that. Right. It is, it is the exact same. And this was a really big mistake that the defense made actually. Um, like, like you said at the beginning, Steve, this wasn't a big bite. Her face wasn't mauled. It was, you know, she has a small scar from it now, but she does have a scar, but there was no plastic surgery recommendation or anything. Um, but nonetheless, it was a bite from the dog bit her and took her down. Um, pre-trial, when we were handling this case, I kept emailing the defense lawyer and I said, why don't you guys just admit liability? Either it's a bite or your guy was negligent. The, the scratch automatically will fulfill the negligence requirement. We're not going to lose on liability. Why don't you just admit it? I probably sent four or five emails to them, spelling it all out, explaining it perfectly. And they just refused. And maybe it was the adjuster. Maybe it was the lawyer. Who knows? But they refused to do so. So we were forced to try it on both, which ended up being the biggest blessing possible because it allowed us to bring in two awesome witnesses, the mailman, okay, in a dog bite case, right. and the animal control officer, okay? And um, these two witnesses very easily established liability for us, but more than that, you know, kind of, it shot the defense credibility because now it's, you know, you guys knew all this stuff and you're still trying to say it's not a bite. And literally at one point, the defense lawyer, you know, put up a picture in her closing of, of the bite wound and says, um, you know, that, that thing, you know, a thing can kind of look like a nail too. And we're just like, what are you talking about? 
And so in rebuttal, we hammered her on that. But it, it was just a slip up. It was a, it was a bad mistake that they made. They could have just made it a damages only trial and refused to. Um, and this was one of those instances where the jury made them pay for it. So she was trying to say that maybe a nail went in like. <laughs> yeah. 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 The man testified. We brought him. He's very like <laughs> he had retired since then. We found him via subpoena and called him the night before. And he came to testify. It was crazy. And he comes and testifies. And I said, you know, he said he saw Jennifer the day after the bite. And, and previously he'd known the dog and that the dog was vicious and scary and would always bark at me and jump at me. And then he saw Jennifer the day after the bite. And I said, what did, what did her wound look like? And he said, oh, it looked like fangs in her arm. <laughs> 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 like a dream. I can't believe this guy saying this. All. And he's the, the most impartial mailman, third-party witness, you know, out of nowhere, drove an hour and a half to come to trial that he had nothing better to do. And It, it was unbelievable hearing this testimony <laughs> live in court. I mean, it, it was awesome. And then so the defense lawyer tried to say, I think a fang, you know, that can kind of be a nail too. Or just mm. like, whatever you say, you know, roll with it, run with it. Please. Yeah, right. Yeah. You exactly. know, when you see dogs and they've got the nails out oh, and yeah. they're just jabbing. <laughs> yes. In a stabbing <laughs> motion. <laughs> um, just one thing to add, because I think this is kind of interesting. So John and I actually were not at the same firm. I was at Panachan Boyle. John was at a different firm. And John and I go way back. And he'd been telling me about this case and the trial date was approaching. And I was like, John, let's, why don't we try the case together? And so we each ran it up the flagpole at our firms and they agreed. And so we ended up trying the case together and I didn't get involved until right, you know, two, three weeks before trial. Uh, so John had worked up, John had worked up the case. I think John, you had even inherited it from another lawyer. This, this case um, got passed around. <laughs> I mean, there were probably three or four lawyers who had touched it. There was a $10,000 offer on it. And then there was a $28,000 offer on it. And then two of the four corners was a $75,000 offer. I think after we associated Panache and Boyle, they started to put like some real money, 75. <laughs> and by the way, when that happened, John got really excited. And I don't, I, I don't know if I can use a swear word on this yes. show, but he, John kept saying, I settle shit. I, I this case is gonna settle. I settle shit. Because like, and there was like a weekend where we were like, this is gonna get done for something in the ones, and yeah. then it just they never they never came off the seventy five. That's funny. I, I I was wondering, you know, so because it, it sounds like they were really going after the scratch, but I. In what you sent us, we were at least able to read the very first part of the opening of the defense, and the first thing she says is that they never said that the turkey scratched the plaintiff. So I'm, I'm wondering, what did she mean by that? Was she... <laughs> I think they were trying to differentiate a scratch from a nail puncture wound. Oh, okay. It's not a scratch. It's bigger than a scratch. It's a nail puncture wound, but they're not negligent. But <laughs> it, it just it was nonsensical. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't really help them out to say wow. and also i mean like their expert wrote in his initial report dog bite injury yeah i i so i saw that and i was going to bring that up but so so they have the what sounds like the uh, essentially a, a defense medical exam or an independent medical exam 
Um, and that uh, it sounds like they were going to call this doctor no matter what. But it sounds from what I read and, and what was in the opening and from your slides, he, not only did he call it a dog bite, but he also said she was injured because of the dog bite and then and then had her down as having lateral ep epicondylitis. So I'm, I'm sitting there wondering, why did they call this? Uh, why did they call this doctor? They, they did not anticipate this case was going to be tried. <laughs> they were not working this up as a trial case. They have this guy, Dr. Nathan, um, even though that's my first name, no relation. They send right. this guy, you know, a few files a month and he bangs out a report and it, he's not, he doesn't think twice about it. I mean, they were so sloppy. They produced a half completed medical records review by this guy where he wrote repeatedly that this injury was related to tennis even though there was, she's a golfer. There was no right. tennis anywhere, anywhere <laughs> in this case. And, you know, it, they produced emails where he's, they're asking him, who should we depose next in this case? They are asking their doctor, their defense doctor. And I think that's just a good lesson that like, you don't assume that they are so, the expert and the defense attorneys are sometimes so deep in it together, but they were just not, they were not, working this case up to be tried. They thought it was going yeah. to be settled. They probably thought we would take the 75. And, you know, when we didn't, what else were they going to do? They had to call this guy. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's like, um, you know, like Steve, I'm thinking about in a, you know, when you've got a roof crush uh, products case, then they're always going to say that it was diving. Um, or, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, is this a common defense in these types of cases to try to, to, you know, to, to, to the point where they were, they were phoning it in or whatever, going through the motions to the point of saying, okay, well the, you know, the first, I mean, we always talk about like, it's not my dog and you know, all that stuff when we're talking about other cases, but I mean, is that a common thing to say, um, no, it was a scratch, not a bite, or was that something that, uh, creative they did for this one? <laughs> I've never seen that before in my life. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it literally, it reads me like, you know, because if you read the statute, uh, the, the civil code in California says the owner of any dog is liable for the damages suffered by any person who is bitten by the dog. It sounds like somebody read that and said, well, if he's not bitten, he's not liable. So let's do something else. <laughs> and, and to be fair, to be fair to them, you know, if you look at the picture, it, it's not like, oh, this is clearly a bite. Right. You know, I think that they were, may have been banking on the fact that this is an Orange County jury where we've got these kind of grainy photos and it just doesn't, it, you know, you don't see teeth marks. It looks like it, it really looks like it could be a scratch. But at the point of trial, uh, they had, you know, their expert had said dog bite injury. And then John on cross examining, no, no, no. The, uh, in, officer. Yes. So, so, but, and, and, and to what the, the defendant had said about whether or not it was a bite. And then the animal control officer, I'll let John discuss that. Cause that was really kind of, that uh, was open and shut. Yeah. So we knew that there was an animal control report for some reason in our file, the animal control report that we had um, was redacted and the narrative of it was redacted. I, I don't know why. I think if it's pre-litigation, they don't give you the full, Whatever. And that's and like I said, this case had kind of passed hands a bunch. And obviously you, you only discover all your mistakes the week before trial. So yeah. um, 
So we, you know, we, we had subpoenaed the animal control officer to come and I'm on the phone with the supervisor saying, you know, hey, can you make it out? He said, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, this is what's going on with the case. And he goes, and I said, they're disputing that it's a dog, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, why do you, you know, you have something that I don't know? And he goes, well, I'm looking at the report and under the narrative section, it says that the defendant told the animal control officer that his dog bit the lady. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so now we were just sitting on this gold mine and we're like you know what we're gonna let them work up this whole case go through this whole trial and it just so worked out that the animal control officer was the last witness in the case because he was up in northern california like saving wildlife from fires for the <laughs> like good looking like in yeah. uniform <laughs> you didn't, I, I wouldn't have expected the animal control guy in uniform he looked like a right like, cop <laughs> yeah, so him with unredacted copies of the animal control report, and he shows up to trial that morning and gives everyone copies. And the defense lawyers are freaking out. We put him on the stand for five minutes, and you know, open and shut. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so both both him and the mailman, you hadn't really gotten a chance to to talk to really before trial, right? Correct. Wow. Correct. Oh man. That makes yeah, me so and nervous. The, and the mailman was great. It was, it was really, it was, it was risky, but we kind of felt like we were okay. Yeah. Because I think you'd had conversations with him that made it clear, but you know, the mailman gets up there and John's like, you know, do you remember this dog? And he's like, oh, I, re oh, I remember that. dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that, that's why they, that was their huge mistake without, if they had conceded liability, None of that was coming in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we got to paint this really cute dog as like a scary menace and worked out <laughs> Wait, for us. And that's the funny thing. I mean, so mailmen, I mean, you know, if anybody's an expert about vicious dogs, it's the, you know, the guy who's going to their house every day, you know, and then and gets scared away every day by the same dog, you know. Um, yeah. So, he, I mean, he probably has nightmares about that dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Well, um, I, I wanted to talk uh, more about the uh, causations question here, because it, to me that, you know, if they had tried it just on this, that probably would have been a better defense. Um, because, you know, since your client is a golf instructor and had golfed all of her life and was active, um, that the the two types of injuries that they were talking about were the, the uh, lateral epicondylitis and the radial tunnel syndrome, both of which are sort of repetitive use injuries or can be. Um, and if you look up, I mean, I just typed in, you know, uh, what else is lateral epicondylitis known as, and it said tennis elbow. Um, so, you know, talk a little bit about the, you know, how you build the case there that, that this is not related to, you know, her years of playing golf and her years of repetitively swinging, uh, but is related to, you know, this day where she gets bitten and falls. So thank God she had never complained about elbow or forearm. <laughs> okay. Cause if she had, it would have been open and shut, right. It, in the wrong way for us. Um, we got every doctor in the case to admit that lateral epicondylitis can be caused by trauma. Okay. So that was step one, which was great. Um, and then, you know, lateral epicondylitis, you're right, is called tennis elbow. But there's another repetitive use injury um, called golfer's elbow. And she wasn't suffering from that. 
So I think that's how we kind of showed that the lateral epicondylitis was actually caused by the subject incident, coupled with the fact that there was no pre-existing history whatsoever. Yeah, and that's, I mean, in addition to the um, what John discussed, the other thing was the, you know, no pain before, no pain after. Every the defense expert admitted that, and so part of the argument was, and I, part of the the, the medical uh, injury that they claimed was that she had these like traction spurs uh, in her tendons or, or bone that are very cons- that, that are typically are part and parcel of lateral epicondylitis. Um, you know, so they were saying she already had it, but to us, we almost can see, I mean, it's like, it doesn't matter whether or not she, there, there's no dispute. There was no pain before and she has this dog bite and there's pain after. So, you know, she could have had any kind of injury, but it wasn't symptomatic at all. She wasn't experiencing any symptoms and the defense couldn't argue with that. Yeah. It's um, sort of like the degenerative, you know, spine that you always hear about when somebody has a back injury that, exactly. you know, everybody has a degenerative uh, condition in their spine, but if they're not symptomatic, then there's no treatment for that person. It's a, you know, if something happens, you get treatment and, and that's what caused it. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Well, so John, I was going to ask you because I thought um, one of the things that was interesting when I was getting up to speed on the case, I think... I can't remember if I had looked at the complaint first, but I think I looked at the opening first. Um, and I was kind of struck by after you sort of, um, you know, laid the the um, sort of framework about what the case was about. You talk, you spent a lot of time on damages first. Um, and I was wondering, you know, if that, um, you know, why you, why you did that, I guess, right? Because like logically you'd be talking about the liability and damage or damages, or at least that's frequently what we hear. So I was hoping you could talk us through 
why you did what you did? I knew we had the animal control officer in our back pocket. And I knew that that was going to win us liability no matter what. And I didn't want to tip the defense off to that. So I actually, as you said that, I remembered what I said about the animal control officer. And all I said in my opening was, you're going to hear from the animal control officer. And I'm going to ask him what the defendant told him. And I want you to listen very closely to what the animal control officer says in response. And that was kind of it for liability. And then I wanted to justify the medical care and really explain the severity of the injury because it really is like, imagine if one of us, you know, our elbow was shot for the rest of our lives. Gardening is harder. Lifting things is harder. You know, taking her laundry up and downstairs was harder. Every activity of daily living was really affected by that. And I wanted to tell that story of my client because I knew that liability was, was going to be a win for us. Gotcha. I just, I, I think I thought it was interesting because it's almost like if you're, you know, trying to get the jury, I don't know, maybe worked up or talk about what, what might be more excited, exciting for them. It's the liability stuff. But the flip side is I think it was really effective because, um, you do end up, I think, cause it's, you know, it's just the sort of primacy and what you hear first, you end up thinking a lot about, you know, when I was reading, I was like, Oh, okay. I didn't know that about uh, tennis elbow or what, what the real word for tennis elbow is. Um, so it's good. You kind of get that appropriate focus on something that is sometimes less exciting in the case. <laughs> and I think to, to, to add to that, you know, at this point I, I was 29, John was 28. We had done trials before, but we were really, I mean, we, we didn't were, yeah. we had right. no <laughs> idea. What we were and so, and I remember the night before closing, because I was new to the case, I had only gotten involved um, a couple of days before. And in fact, the day before trial started, I was in Florida. I didn't think the trial was going to start. And we had our, <laughs> we had our trial call with the judge Monday morning and I'm texting my wife, like we need to book flights like tonight to get back to LA. And we showed up the next morning in Orange County at 8.30 AM. John, we, we pick a jury. And then that night we're going through opening. And at this point, I'm not like that familiar with the case. And especially like, <laughs> I couldn't say lateral epicondylitis. Like it didn't, I the words, it just didn't, I didn't understand anything about the injuries. And so one of the things that I was urging John to do is like, dude, we just really need to make sure the jury understands what the heck these injuries are, because it's not like, oh, I broke a leg, you know, my, I have a back injury. It's like kind of a nuanced, like orthopedic injury. And I remember discussing with John. And at one point, John was like, all right, he like had a PowerPoint that he was going to use. He's like, forget it. I'm not using the PowerPoint. He had butcher paper. And the only two things he wrote in his opening were lateral epicondylitis and radial tunnel syndrome. And that was really important from from our perspective. And I I felt like I was kind of coming at it more like the jurors were because I'm like, what are these injuries? It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Like, please focus on teaching the jury. Mm -hmm what these are so that as this trial is going on, they know what the hell we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what's funny, Steve is, is speaking of age and how old y'all were when you tried this case. All I keep thinking about is that now I'm um, f- now that I'm 40 and I, I have complained about probably every single body part in my body and how <laughs> I'd be screwed <laughs> because no matter, no matter what happens to me later, everything hurts and I'm a complainer. So I'm sure I've complained about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I'm 30 and I'm like, I feel like everything's falling apart. So. <laughs> Just wait. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, look, you young people don't get to uh, complain. I mean, I'm going to be 50 this year. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you I, I can tell you about, you know, you just uh, wake up from sleeping and all of a sudden something else new hurts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you have no idea why. Um, I, I, one other question I was just wondering, did the defense ever in and it sounds like they wouldn't have because they they weren't putting that kind of effort into the trial. But did they ever talk about bringing the dog to trial or having the jury just come see the dog or anything? If he's this little cute thing, I mean, I say little 55 pounds, but I mean, I had a, it's I had a dog that was was 90 pounds, you know, so I know a 55 pound dog is not it's not a, a huge dog. So um, that, was, that was never that was never a discussion. Um the the one thing that they did do, which was also surprising, was we we called the defendant in our case in chief, which you're allowed to do in California, yeah. mm-hmm. adverse witness. So we called him and did a little I did a little cross examination of him, and we talked about the collar and how it was a choke collar, and you know, um, and then the defense reserved their right to call him in their case in chief. So they didn't redirect him then. After I finished with him, the next day, you know, before they call him. Uh, the defense lawyer brings a couple pictures of the dog's collar and says, you know, these weren't on the exhibit list, but we want to show them to the jury because, you know, you said choke collar and they're going to think it's like big chains and crazy and blah, blah, blah. And if you saw the picture of the collar, you'd think it was like a vicious pit bull, you know, and, and <laughs> like, thank you. Another gift. Yes, of course, please use it. Like we don't buy like, steel chains, like big links, you know, this poor dog. <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to bring that in, but they didn't bring the dog in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what does that do? I feel like that. I mean, I guess maybe they're trying to say, no, I don't get what that does. No, I mean, it, you know, unless, unless for some reason they thought it didn't look that bad. I, I, I Yeah, no they idea. didn't think it. They thought it was like a thin chain. Oh, OK, OK. Right. It was. It wasn't like it wasn't like thick, mm-hmm. but it didn't look like this is something that you'd use on like a friendly little dog. Didn't right. look, it didn't look it didn't look like turkey in that picture right yeah exactly exactly and the pictures of turkey it was like lounging like it was it, it was like in the golden hour like it had beautiful lighting it was very cute and i the the chain was really not helpful <laughs> not helpful to them at all yeah yeah well and i also feel like any anybody who has like experience with dogs knows which i think is almost everyone knows that you can have a you know a dog that's very chill at times and chill around the people that they know and potentially really bad when on a leash or really bad Mm -hmm. when confined or really bad around other dogs so you know i just you know i don't know how much that does for you i mean i get i get you know at least trying to go for the sympathy for the dog especially if you've got a whole other a whole lot of other bad facts you're trying to deal with. Um, they were during voir dire, some potential jurors expressed concerns about the dog. Yeah. They know something was going to happen to the dog, depending on this verdict, right. In, in a civil case, which obviously nothing, the dog was quarantined for like 10 days and that was it. And so I think either Nathan in his closing or me and my rebuttal at some point, I was just like, the dog's going to be okay. Like no matter what your verdict was, like, don't worry. And the defense yeah. Like about to object, but they didn't because obviously there was no evidence <clears throat> it was going to be okay. But you know, I was just saying it. Yeah, well, yeah. and you know, I mean, I think a lot of people, um, most people, but especially dog people, you know, probably you know wouldn't like the choke chain or mm-hmm. would blame you know would blame the owner for for something like this. And so it's really um, d- depending on what kind of juror you have and and what their outlook is and stuff like that. I can imagine that is like a really tricky area to kind of 
deal with with jurors? Do you want people that have dogs? Do you want people that don't have dogs? Do you, you know, like it's such a, it's something people feel really strongly about. And a lot of people had had, a lot of people on the jury had had experiences, you know, oh, I got bit by a dog, but I would never, you know, sue. And, right. and I think part of the, part of the, the, the way that we wanted to frame it was this, this is about the owner, not the dog. Right. Yeah. And, um, in John's, in John's cross of the owner, um, he got some really good admissions. He got the owner to admit that he's responsible for any harm caused by the dog. You know, and so that was something that like I brought home in my closing was like, you don't need forget about the law, forget about strict liability, forget about negligence. (laughs) Like the defendant is saying he's responsible for harm caused by the dog. And he admitted caused an injury. Yes. And he couldn't. The one thing he couldn't say, because he'd said in his deposition, which had been like four years prior. What's up, Rob? (laughs) (laughs) That's lawyers right here. This is his old boss. Rob is my old boss. John's current boss. (laughs) A a guest appearance. (laughs) I told him that he could do one witness in our first trial. We still got a seven-figure verdict. I don't know how after the performance he put on. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, I did two. I did two witnesses. Okay, I did two witnesses (laughs) that trial. It's critical. That might be that must might be one of our first uh, podcast burns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, podcast bombing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then the, the defendant also said he couldn't he couldn't rule out that the dog had bit Mr. Right. Jones. He, he didn't right. even deny it. He couldn't. So he right, he didn't see it. Right. He, right. right. This, so, so what we kind of said was like all of these arguments, these are just like concocted by his lawyers. Right. The defendant was a totally good, normal guy. Right. He was just like in his thirties, like had a dog with his fiance and was just like living his life. And these defense lawyers from state farm are like screwing around with him and not paying a reasonable settlement and saying that the dog didn't bite and making these crazy defenses and hiring these doctors to make stuff up. That's kind of what we went with. And in Nathan's closing, we had one slide. That was, you know, every single person agrees with yeah. that injury or that there was a bite, except the defense lawyer. There we go. Yeah. Oh, it's it's, it's yeah, blurred. So, yeah, it blurred? Sorry, okay, yeah, hold it, what? hold it closer to your face. <laughs> closer to closer. me. Okay. There yeah, we go. yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> is it backwards to you or is it just no, no it looks good. right so you well, did you I did use the um you did use the closing PowerPoint. You ditched the open PowerPoint, but you you used the closing because it was good. Yeah. 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 We use the closing PowerPoint, um, which, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we put together as the trial kind of went along and I had, you know, all the trials I had done, like with Rob, the guy who tried to, who tried to burn me, um, just now, you know, we always had really thorough, uh, closing PowerPoints and a big thing, a big theme in those PowerPoints was showing like, you know, everybody agree. Here are all the people that agree with this, you know, boom, right. boom, 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 boom. <clears throat> and then we were thinking we didn't have that in this case because it was obviously a dispute about the bite. But what we had was almost even better. It's like everybody except for these defense lawyers agrees on one thing and they're insulting you, really. I mean, this is an insult to to you, to yeah. the jurors, that they're coming here and arguing that this was not a bite. Well, and, and client, it, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a great, I mean, the the defense lawyers are wasting the jury's time by making you decide that this is a dog bite case when everybody knows it's a dog bite case. 
Right. Right. No, that's a good point. This trial could have been a two day trial. Yeah. You know, but the defendants are making this about a bite that's obviously not in dispute. Right. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about how you built the the damages portion of this as far as, you know, in, in what you asked the jury for and, and you know, how you got them to the number that you did. So you want to talk a little bit about how you presented, you know, this the effect that this had on uh, Miss Jones' life and, and, um, and, and how you got them to, uh, to award the damages that they, that they did? Yeah. So, you know, there were a couple elements and, and really this, because we were so new and we had a ton of help. I mean, throughout this entire trial, because we were new, people were kind of interested in what we were doing. One, two, there were no other trials. Exactly. I mean, this yeah. was like literally no other trials were going on in, in Southern California or really in the, like we found one in Northern California that had happened a month before. And the Orange County Superior Court did the really smart thing of, of, of airing it on YouTube because I think they had closed the courtroom to the public or something mm-hmm. like that. So right. they aired it on YouTube. So there was like a link and people would watch. And in coming up with our closing, we, you know, as every good trial lawyer tries to do, we stole a bunch of themes from a bunch of people who really helped. Um, and uh, the, the the medical expenses, that was kind of easy. Um, the future meds, there was a dispute between our two experts as to which number. And we just went with the lower one because it really didn't feel like it was worth the fight. And then in terms of the the past and future pain and suffering, we kind of set it up. And I can't remember where I got this theme from, but like, explaining non-economic damages, it was like, you know, if if we represented Costco in a case and Costco in a case against someone who had come in and broken a bunch of the flat screen TVs, we would have been seeking, you know, the replacement cost for the TV, the TVs, the cleanup, those kind of things. But there's no pain and suffering, you know, that's, and that's what makes us human. This is a special category of damages that's unique to humans. So we teed it up that way. And then we told this story about a man with the duffel bag, John, and that I, you found that I don't remember where that story came from. So who knows where it originally came from? Right. I got it from Bob Simon of Simon Law Group. And, right. And, and he was one of, you know, we had people tuning in daily to our trial and texting us at lunch saying, ask this witness that ask this witness this. It was awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. When we were preparing for our closing, Bob Simon gave me this awesome duffel bag um, story, which is, in essence, you know, guy shows up with two duffel bags to... Wait, John, 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 I want to give it. I want to give the duffel bag. (laughs) This is like my moment, John, come on. Um, No, the duffel bag bag story is a way to explain a a big non-economics number. A a mysterious man shows up with a duffel bag and said, you know, in the plaintiff shows up to the plaintiff an hour before the injury occurs about, but they're about to go on this, you know, Miss Jones is about to go on this walk where she gets this dog bite. The guy with the duffel bag shows up. She says, what's in the duffel bags? He says, $1.2 million. And she's like, for me, she's like, yeah, it's for you. You What did I do to deserve this? You know, I didn't, she, and he said, well, I'm going to give you this, you know, you have two choices, really. You take this duffel bag. And if you take the money in it, you're going to spend the rest, you know, you're going to walk, you're going to go on a walk in an hour and you're going to get bitten by a dog. It's going to hurt like hell. 
You're going to have a scar for the rest of your life. You're going to go through all this treatment. It's going to be excruciatingly painful. And, you know, I'm, I'm building it up. And, you know, the defendants are going to call you liars and you're, they're going to make you come to court and prove that you were actually injured. Um, and you kind of you dragged that out. And then, you know, the client's like, well, I don't want the money. And the guy with the duffel bags is like, that choice has been made for you. You know, that choice has been made for you by the defense by the defendant, by the defendant's dog. I can't remember what the wording was, but you know, that, that, that choice has been made. This money's yours. And the only person who can correct that, the only people who can correct that are you, the jurors, the 12 of you in the box. And so we picked a number. I don't even know how we picked the number. I mean, I think we were just kind of making it up. Well, we were, we were struggling with the number for a while. I was very scared to ask for seven figures because right. we were in Orange County and this was a dog bite case with a scar that was as big as a penny and $40,000 in meds. So I was thinking, you know, maybe we would ask for five to 700. I don't want to offend the jurors, whatever. And as the case kept going, we didn't announce a number in opening. Okay. So as the case kept going, we felt good. And again, we were like, you know, 27, 28 years old. And we're just like, whatever, let's, let's just go crazy. And so we yeah. just decided, I think it was just like, let's pick a number 400 for the past 800 for the future. And so we got to 1.2 and whatever the meds are. Yeah. The defense said to give like 30 grand, you know, whatever they always say. Right. 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 Huge dichotomy. And I remember Nathan, I don't know if you remember Nathan closed and then it was lunch. And then the defense closed right after Nathan closed. And as we're leaving for lunch, we're standing outside and we see the defense lawyers exit. And you could, you could hear under their breath when they're exiting, like, this is such bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. we, we went big we went big because we knew that they had their they had totally botched their case and you know if we wanted to get a nice verdict like we had to ask for good money and we were let me just say we were praying to get over a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> yeah a <laughs> hundred this is a win my office, you know, my last firm, they had like a pool of, you know, how much the verdict's going to be. The highest in the pool was like 135,000. <laughs> no one thought this was the case. Okay. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and part of the, you know, part of the, 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 the non-economic damages story was about her as a golfer, because that was one of the things that to me, I'm like golf, like who cares? You know, it's golf. She can't, it's not a, it, that that's a luxury activity, but you know, we made it. It's like, this is her. And we called her, her boyfriend, um, who was a little sketchy, uh, if I remember. And, you know, he testified about how great of a golfer she was and like all of her friends were golfers. That's all she did. Like everything was golf. And it's like, that's gone. Like she sucks at golf. Imagine something that you build a community, a life around. You're good at it. That gives you pride, self-esteem. You enjoy doing it like cooking or baking or knitting or caring for your grandkids is something you're good at. And then all of a sudden you're not. And, and it's not just that you're not good, you're bad and it's embarrassing and it hurts when you do it. So that was part of what we used to build up. Like this isn't just golf, like it's ruined her life. Mm -hmm. And that I think justified the big numbers. And, you know, we kind of, we shot for the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you took away the thing that she loved and you made it no fun for her anymore. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, it, you're right. It completely changes the, the you know, the trajectory of her life. Right. Um, I, I wanted to know, did you um, get a chance to talk to the jurors? And I guess I should mention, so in, on the verdict form, 
uh, you, the jury could find that the dog bit, um, your client and that, and then you would get the damages under strict liability. There's also a finding of, you know, was Mr. Epstein negligent? Uh, and then, and that way you get to, uh, damages as well. In this case, they found that the dog did bite, um, your client that that, and that dog bite led to her injuries. So you, you got to where you were, but they, but they actually did not find that he was negligent. So I, I didn't know if you wanted to talk, talk about what the jury said and what, what they might've said about why they, why they decided the way they did. So on the verdict sheet, actually the instruction if you answer yes to question one, oh, you did. Oh, yeah. Just okay. Go to question three. This this is why um, you should read Yvonne, because now I'm looking at it, and he's and your Nathan is exactly <laughs> right. It does say skip question two, so they so they didn't answer it. Yes, they didn't. But they followed it. it. They followed instructions. Right. Right. Yeah. Better than I did. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't answer, and they went straight to it. And and actually, and John did something that was really smart, which I will do from now on. John was like all over the jurors. And handed handed them all of his business cards. And John, tell us, tell us about the jurors. You know, we we talked to a few, a couple hung back, and then I, I gave some business cards. I, you know, call me if you want to talk more, if you have questions, you ever need a lawyer, whatever. <laughs> One of them like calls me an hour later and leaves me a voicemail. And he's like, I just wanted to talk about the case. So I call him and we talk about the case. And I was like, what did you like? What didn't you like? He's like, we like the duffel bag story. We like the Humpty Dumpty thing about being an eggshell plaintiff. You know, I think you guys did a nice job. He was just like this really, really nice guy. And we, we, we kept in touch with him, actually, because shortly after that trial, because this was one of the first post-COVID trials, one of whose um, case analysis wanted to do a webinar with us and talk about the trial. And we're like, okay, cool. And Nathan and I were like, we should call the juror and see if he'll just come on and like give us his perspective. And he did. And he, you know, told us everything that he liked and didn't like. It was like, you know, it was obvious that it was a bite. The animal control guy was, was great. The mailman was great. And, you know, and, and I remember in my rebuttal, I said, you know, cause we had given 1.2, they had given 30. Um, in my rebuttal, I said, you know, $30,000 is not a lot of money. You know, they're going to be popping champagne if you give $30,000, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I got an objection, but whatever. And sustained. And a sustained <laughs> objection in this rebuttal, <laughs> which I understand is that is, that's not the last time that's happened to John, yeah. which I love. Right, right. <laughs> then I said, you know, if we've earned your trust, then start at our numbers. And you could start at our numbers and you could take a vote and go up and down from there. And so the jury started at our numbers. And they were never going to pay a million bucks or 1.2, but they started there and they kind of worked their way down and negotiated it. I think because we had that big ask, you know, kind of shoot for the stars, shoot for the moon, land on the stars, something like that, right? Um, or the other way around. It's the other way. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> we landed somewhere. So. That's right. <laughs> and we were concerned at first because, well, first of all, what was really flattering is the guy, his name was like Mr. Hawk, I think. He he was a kind of juror. He had a book with him every day. He was like a retired, I think he'd been some type of teacher, like a professional. And it was flattering that that guy was like on our side. The, the, the four person was this, um, this unfriendly older, maybe mid seventies female, um, who had been a golfer and a former retired sheriff, right? John, she yeah. was like a retired law enforcement. That's why we liked her. We're like, she golfs, she'll get it. She's a, she's former law enforcement. We have the animal control officer coming, you know? Yeah. Great. 
Yeah. But in, in my closing, like she's the one juror who like will not look at me and I'm like, Oh God. And then <laughs> we see, you know, I, I don't think they, I don't think they, did they, do we get any juror notes? I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. No. Yeah. So anyway, she was, the, I think she was the least, the, the votes were not all unanimous. And I think she voted against us on the, the damages categories. She wants um, zero for pain and suffering. Correct. Wow. What we right. to give. She thought that this was BS. Yeah. Which you all have at least one of those, right? Right, right. Yeah, right. 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 Hope you have I know yeah. when I, when I got to that slot, cause in, in Georgia, you have to have a unanimous jury. And so when I got to that slide, I was like, damn it. Oh, it's <laughs> the nine of 12. <laughs> New York is five of six. Um, but the nine of 12 is just, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It, it, nine of 12 can help you or it can hurt you. You know what I mean? Like I right. said, if you have nine good jurors, great. If you have, you know, nine bad, nine bad jurors, right. yeah, they're, they're getting home for dinner. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, well, guys, this has been just a, a, a great, uh, podcast and great talk about this case. Um, I did want to ask you guys, since you're both so young and this was your first trial that you were doing kind of on your own, uh, you got any advice for other young lawyers, uh, looking to go out and try their first case? I, I would say, first of all, you have to just do it and it's scary um, and it can be intimidating, but you have to really just do it. Lean on as many people as you can. Steal opening slides, closing slides, direct outlines, whatever you can get your hands on. Take it and make it your own for your case. But you have to just get in the courtroom, and it's going to be nerve-wracking the first day, and motions and limine are going to be you know, scary, and picking a jury is going to be hard. But the only way to get good at trying cases is to actually do it. Now, is your first trial going to be a, a you know an eight-figure TBI? You know, probably not. But cases like these, you know, these high-five, low-six-figure cases need to be tried sometimes too. They're not that expensive to try, and sometimes it's worth you know going out on a limb, getting the experience, and getting the result for your client. Yeah, and and you know the one thing I'll add to that, John, John and I are both disciples of of Shane Inspector, um, who who was a, a previous guest on this podcast. Yeah. And he, he taught me an important lesson before I joined Panache and Boyle. I, I went straight into plaintiff's personal injury out of law school. And he said, you know, take, go around and get the, the worst cases in the office that no one cares if you'll try um, because there's no, you know, it doesn't matter what happens on these cases. And this is, he called them dogs, which is funny because yeah. this case was a dog, you know, and, <laughs> and no, you know, the, the, everyone kind of expects low, it doesn't expect a lot from you and you get a lot of experience. And every time, like I get that feeling in my gut, like, oh, I'm like really scared about doing that thing in, tr in the trial context. I always know, like, I have to do that. Like, I'm scared about doing this. Like if you follow that feeling and do it, and then you're going to do it and it's not going to be as bad as you think. Or it's going to be a disaster and you're going to have learned a really valuable lesson. But, you know, as John said, you, you just you just got to get in the ring. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and most of the time, even though it is uh, it's stressful, it's nerve wracking, um, you know, you get anxious, uh, especially right before. Once you get into it, uh, you know, you just start to, you know, find your ground and find where you are. And um, 
Or if and, you're uh, me, you black out and then you <laughs> right, sit down and you're exactly. like, what happened? How did it go? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've had, I've had some blackout experiences. <laughs> right, right. Or, or, or you realize that you don't like trying cases, which right. can also be really valuable to you That's in right. your career. You know? <laughs> right, right. Like this sucks. I'm not doing this again. That happens to people and that's a good thing for them. That's right. It's like, that's I'm right. not going to do this again. Learn that early on. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything else about the Jones versus Epstein case that uh, you want to make sure that our listeners know about that you haven't had a chance to talk about? I think we, I think we covered everything. I think we covered everything. Yeah. And I just well, thank, thank you guys for having us on here. I think, uh, uh, Steve, we discussed this pre-recording. This has got to be the smallest verdict on the Great Trials <laughs> podcast. It's an honor for John and I to be, to be bringing up the rear and, um, you know, just thank you for, for, for giving us a shot to, to come on this awesome show. Well, yeah. the, the one thing I would, I would say is that I, we, we, you know, it is called the great trials podcast. We never meant that to mean the biggest verdict because you can have a great trial that ends in a really good result, a really great result that, you know, is $309,000. It's, this is a great result for this case. And, that's, um, that's yeah. what I was to say. It's not the, it's not the big verdicts podcast. This is the that's great. Right. We beat the policy. We beat the, <laughs> they paid interest, you know, we'll, we'll take it to the bank. Right. Yeah. I mean, not to mention the fact that a lot of, you know, a lot of us think it's very interesting to hear about like the, you know, $5,000 toxic, I mean, 5,000 people member toxic tort case, whatever. But when it comes to what we can actually use, a lot of times it's, it's stuff from cases like this. So I think this is great to talk about. Yeah, and if anybody, you know, you, hopefully our, the, the listeners will have our contact information. If anybody's got any questions or wants to meet up, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out to either of us. Absolutely. And I will remind everybody that we've been talking to Nathan Worksman and, and John Davidi. And if you want to look up Nathan, uh, go to mersonlaw.com. That's M-E-R-S-O-N law.com. And if you want to look up John, go to psbr.law. That's psbr.law. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Steve and Yvonne, thanks so Thank much. you guys so much. This was great. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.